Good evening, church. It's good to see you here tonight. Uh, if you would like, I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15. I'm going to be reading there in just a few moments, but not quite yet. We have been talking in two previous occasions about a topic that I have called three keys for organizing the organism. And if you were here, you may not have known that's what we were talking about, but three keys for organizing the organism. The key number one I talked about on September 17th, key number two on November 5th, and then today's November 12th, we're going to talk about key number three. And Pastor, why are, why are you doing this to us? Um, we, have, we have an organization within our church that is called, traditionally called Sunday School. How many of you are part of the Sunday School of Wind Baptist Church? Almost unanimous. And we call them different names, small groups, Bible study groups, uh, different, different names. But those groups are very important to the life of our church. It is what makes us more than just a meeting and, and helps us to actually be a church. And whatever list of requirements or purposes that you have in your mind that the Bible says we ought to have church, uh, most of those purposes you're going to find fulfilled not in the sanctuary, but in your Bible study group. And, and so we've taken some time to just talk about the importance of those groups. And tonight, I'm going to kind of close out that conversation for now. Uh, organizing the organism. The first key that we talked about in September was the key of directional control. And this is should be on the screen. This is just by review very quickly. Our direction as a church is controlled by five things. And, and so whatever we do as a church should be controlled by these five things, these five truths. The first one is this. Jesus is the head of the body. And we looked at scriptures that show us that he is not like a head. He really is the head of the church. And he has never given up his headship or his authority to anybody else. And so he is the head of the church. The second truth is that the church is the body of Christ. So if he's the head, we're the ones that respond to him as the head. We are the body. We are gifted in different ways. We have different assignments, different offices, different positions in the church, different places where we serve and participate, different things that we bring to the table. But we are together the body of Christ, and he's the head. Third truth, Jesus does not delegate leadership he exercises leadership. And this is probably one of the most difficult concepts for people in the church to understand if they are not themselves being directed by him in their personal life. If you are not abiding in Christ and receiving from him direction for your life, it's going to be hard to conceive of how the church can be a place where Jesus exercises leadership. And yet we saw in the New Testament that's exactly what he intends to do is to exercise leadership over us. Number four, Jesus guides us through his spirit today. He's not here in the flesh, in physical form, but he is through his Holy Spirit. And then number five, Jesus wants to grow your Bible study group because that is where most of the church happens. If church is going to happen, it happens there. And you'll remember uh, the five functions of the church or purposes of the church. Uh, they're actually quite ancient. And sometimes that list can be as, as many as 12, but there are five generally that we talk about. And they are evangelism, 
discipleship, ministry, fellowship, and worship. Now, you may or may not worship in your Bible study group, but you should be doing discipleship there. You should have some element of evangelism there. There should be ministry there. There should be fellowship there. Those are all things that may or may not happen here in the auditorium. But they definitely should be happening in your Bible study group. And so I believe Jesus cares about our groups as, as much as uh, well, it may surprise you to know that he cares about our groups that way. So directional control. I think if we are going to be what he's called us to be, we have to recognize his authority and his leadership in our groups. Key number two, we studied this last week. Key number two is essential practices. How do we put action to those ideas? And we talked about putting together some teams in the fellowship. That the New Testament pattern for reproducing leadership was, was someone who was mature coming along someone who was young and investing in them and as a Paul investing in a Timothy, then that Timothy matures and can in turn invest in their own Timothy someday. And that ideally, every Christian would have a Paul in your life that you draw from and a Timothy that you're investing in. That is the fastest way, by the way, I believe, to grow spiritually, is to have a Paul that you're drawing from and a Timothy that you're investing in. And we saw that in 2 Timothy 2.2. Where the Bible says, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, Paul says to Timothy, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so we talked about four teams. And in your Bible study group, the first team we talked about was leadership and team building. And these are individuals who are good organizers. They're good administrators. A lot of times we think the teacher is in charge of doing all the administration for a class. They really don't have time to do that. It's all they can do to be a good teacher. And so having a leadership group in your class, they help make sure that things happen that need to happen. They really should be making sure that everybody is serving in some way in a class, get everybody involved. Uh, they should make sure things get on a calendar. They should make sure that, that the class is thinking about what our purpose is and holding that purpose up to the class periodically. You know, we exist, but not just for ourselves. We exist for people who aren't here yet. And so one of the things we want to do as a class, ultimately, is have new people come in and grow to a place where we may need to start another group and spin off a group. And so you have a leadership team. You have teaching a discipleship team. That's the teacher. And it's not a team if it's just the teacher, though, is it? Uh, if it's a team, you've got other people with teaching gifts who join that teacher. Their goal is to help people grow in maturity, and you do that through teaching, but also as a teacher, you, you invest in a younger teacher. Uh, they may not be younger in years, but younger in experience. And as a Paul, you invest in your Timothy, and you let them teach once in a while, you, you help raise them up, and then eventually, when that class gets ready to start a new class, what have you done? Well, you've got another teacher, and some people can go out with that teacher and help start a new class. And so there's this constant uh, developing and investing in people and helping them to grow, teaching and discipleship. Third team we looked at last week was ministry and care. They make sure that people don't fall through the cracks. They make sure that when someone's going to the hospital, that someone knows about it and, and looks in on them. And, and if they need meals, helps line up meals in the class. You know, the practical ministry things that need to happen. 
Uh, I talked to somebody recently, um, and um, and this is a negative example. But I just I talked to somebody recently, and and uh, who who'd been out who's been out for a while, and I said, "Has anyone from your class come by to see you? Has anybody checked on you from your class?" And they indicated, "Not very many." And so what this ministry team that we're talking about, a ministering and caring team would do, is, is make sure that that happens, that we're doing it on purpose. Yes, because we love people, but sometimes we love people, and if we don't plan, uh, sometimes our love doesn't show. And so they, they help us, that ministry and care team. Um, I used to tell Sunday school teachers years ago that, that our Sunday school teachers in our church and our leadership in our Sunday school classes, Bible study groups, that they were the first line of pastoral care in a church. That they should know about needs before even the staff knows. And that many times they would beat us to the hospital or beat us to whatever the scene was. And, um, and so that caring for people doesn't get assigned to someone who does it for a living, but it's something that we do together as believers for one another. And then the last team is outreach and assimilation. I usually nickname this group the party team. Uh, outreach and assimilation are people who, as the name implies, they reach out to new people when they come and visit your class. They help those people meet other people. Um, they sit with them. They help other people to sit with them. They invite them to lunch. They do all those kinds of things, outreach and assimilation. They're helping people get plugged in. But I tell you, one of the best ways to do that is, is to have a party and to have fellowship as a class, to come together and do things together and that's one of the best ways for new people to get plugged in and to meet people and that sort of thing and so party people are great at that so those are some essential practices so we have a sense key number one directional control the second one is essential practices but but this is probably the most important that I'm going to talk about next key number three and that is we need a clear mission we need a clear purpose for why we meet on Sunday morning in our classroom why do we do this why are we here? And you know, sometimes you can walk into a group and if, if everybody didn't answer out loud and you just had everybody write it down, why are we here? And you have 10 people in the room, you might get 10 different answers. Because we don't always know why we're here. Well, we're here to study the Bible. Uh, we're here to uh, look in on one another and have friendships. Uh, we're here for whatever other reasons, because I'm supposed to be here, <laughs> or whatever comes to mind. But we need to understand that our group, if we are the smallest unit of the church, that we have the mission of the church in our group, that that's our assignment, that the mission of the church doesn't live in a staff office, the mission of the church lives in the church. And that, that Bible study group becomes the smallest unit where that mission is expressed I mean, I can talk about it, but we don't do it until it gets down into our individual lives and into our groups and uh, our relationship. Why is that important? I had a whole battery of statistics and things to show you, but I decided not to go there tonight. I want to talk to you about mission from the Scripture. But let me show you just, just three pictures of why I think mission's important at this time in the life of our country. Okay, I'm just thinking a really big, big scale. Uh, you'll see four different denominational groups up there on the screen. Assemblies of God, Episcopal Church, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, 
and the PCUS, the Presbyterian Church in the USA. The dates at the top, the numbers at the top are the membership of those churches starting in 1975, going all the way to the bottom of the screen to 2015 and the percentage change over that 40-year period. Is that right? 40 years? 1975, 2015? Great. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one. All right. So you'll see up there that, that these major denominational groups over that 40-year period, the Presbyterian Church has lost over half its membership. The Evangelical Lutheran Church has lost a third of its membership. The Episcopal Church, 38% of its membership. The Assemblies of God have, have grown from 1.2 million to 3.1 million, 158% of their membership. Growth. So what we're saying about the United States struggling spiritually to reach people for Christ, that's not true of all denominations. It's not true of our, of our assembly, brothers and sisters. It's not true of Southern Baptists. Look at the next screen. Uh, you'll see the Roman Catholic Church on the left. They're growing. And um, we don't think of Roman Catholicism or Roman Catholics as being evangelistic. So what do you think accounts for much of their growth? Anybody want to guess? What's that? Well, birth rate for sure. Yeah, I, got, I had six kids. I was raised Catholic. Immigration. I really believe that immigration is a huge part of that number, okay? It's a significant number. And they've grown from 48 million to 69 million. Next to them, we have the Southern Baptist Convention. In 1975, we had 12.7 million. In 2015, we had 15.2 million. That's a 20% growth rate. Now, we know our baptisms have decreased over the last 12, 15 years. So, so you can see that our overall membership has actually dropped a little bit in recent years. Between 2010 and 2015, there's actually been a decline. And so, and so that's of concern, but at the same time, we still preach the gospel. People are still being saved, and we're still seeing people come to Christ. There is a sense of mission in Baptist life. I'm not sure that it's as prevalent as it was 40 years ago, but it is still here in our lives today. Uh, the United Church of Christ, which is a denomination that rejects most of the traditional teaching of Scripture, uh, has declined from 1.8 million to less than a million, almost half their membership. United Methodist Church has declined by a third over that same 40-year period. Listen, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, it makes a difference whether or not you believe God's Word. It makes a difference whether or not you preach and teach and believe God's Word. We have a gospel message that we believe everybody needs to hear. If you don't believe that, then you're part of the problem. We have a message that we believe everybody needs to hear. And because of that, as a denomination, we have not seen the declines that others do. Here's what I fear is happening. We say we believe it, but we're not sharing it. We say it's true, but we're not acting like it's true. And so we need to be very cautious about taking a traditional stance. I believe the Word of God. I believe it from cover to cover, from Genesis to maps, all that kind of stuff. Versus how much of the truth have I applied to my life? And I believe, dear ones, it's in our Bible study groups that our mission needs to happen. If it doesn't happen there, I'm not sure it's going to happen uh, except in individual lives here and there. Clear mission. Well, I want to read a passage of Scripture, and I want to make a few observations about it. 
and then um, let's see what the Lord does. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now all, and I love that word all, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, He calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus, as clearly as I think he does anywhere in the Scripture, is making it clear that he has come to this planet at this moment, to eliminate lostness. To eliminate lost ones. To reconcile people to God. People who don't know Him, people who are wandering, people who are lost. He has come to seek and save that which was lost. And in this passage of Scripture, He makes it really plain being criticized, um, accused of some kind of impropriety because he was spending his time with the wrong kinds of people. The mission I want to describe from this text of Scripture involves four things. Our mission, and this applies to our Bible study groups, it applies to us as individuals, But the first part of it involves this statement, liberating words. Liberating words. What was happening in verse 1? The Bible says that all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear him. Now the significance of that is that the tax collectors and sinners were what we would call today progressives or secular, irreligious people who, who on the surface seemed to reject God and reject his people and reject the church and seem opposed to everything that's good and right. And from the standpoint of the religious people of Jesus' day, that's who they were. And they weren't welcome in the synagogue, but it's not like they were interested in going. And so the Bible says that whatever it was that Jesus was saying to them, and I believe they were liberating words, by the way, that whatever Jesus was saying to them was so incredible, so awesome, so fascinating that it gripped their hearts and it says all of them came to Christ to hear what he was saying. Liberating words. Now, we're not told here what he was preaching at that particular moment. But we're told elsewhere in the Gospels what he preached. Repeatedly, it says that he came preaching. In fact, right after the Holy Spirit 
came on him at his baptism and right after the, the temptation in the wilderness for 40 days. The Bible says that just like John the Baptist, Jesus came preaching this message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now every Jewish person in Jesus' day knew what that meant. They knew from the Old Testament prophecies that when God was going to send his Messiah and the kingdom of God was going to be established on earth and every enemy of God was going to be put down and destroyed and God's rule and, and, and all of life was going to be expressed and he was going to put it all back the way it was supposed to be. That all the damage of sin, all the damage of Satan, all the damage caused in this world by, by our own sin was going to be corrected and it was going to be put back. And dear ones, by the way, that is still going to happen. He is coming again. But this first coming was not what they expected. And yet he still came and preached it. Repent, turn, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from a life where you're the king and you're ruling your life, making your own decisions. Turn from that life, repent, turn to him because the king is here and the king is coming. Now the kingdom of God, properly understood in the New Testament, it refers to the active working out of the will of God, the expression of God's presence and God's power. And so when Jesus went about preaching the kingdom of God, he not only preached it, but he also demonstrated it. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He quieted killer storms. He did all of the things that were not part of God's original creation, and he put it right. He was expressing the kingdom of God through his ministry, and in that sense, the kingdom of God was at hand, meaning it's right here. And so Jesus was preaching that the Father is coming, and everything that's broken in this world, everything that's caused your life to be miserable, all the enemies of your soul can be put down. And the Father who loves you has come to rescue you. And the great pains that you have in your heart, the great pains that you have in your life, the things that you have done that you realize now you've only hurt yourself and you've made life difficult for yourself and you've hurt other people and you've messed up, the King has come. And you can be forgiven. And if you yield to the King, he'll change your life. Those people sitting there knew that everything he said was true. They knew it. They didn't need anybody to tell them they had messed up their life. They didn't need any, anybody looking down their nose at them because they'd messed up their life. They were already in a hole. They knew it. Jesus came and preached a message that said it can be different. And God loves you and you can have a relationship with him. So he preached liberating words. And it says all of the sinners and tax collectors, the irreligious people, the people that the church and the synagogue would not be very comfortable with, they were all coming to hear him. Is it because he watered down his message? No. I think it was because of his message. And if anything, we need to recover his message in our teaching and even our preaching. And so our mission involves a message properly understood. It sets people free. 
properly understood, it draws people to God. It doesn't drive them away from him. And, and that's what Jesus was doing at this moment. Liberating words. Second part of our mission that I see in this text. Depth relationships. Depth relationships. Jesus was criticized for receiving and eating with these secular and irreligious people. Jesus, don't you know you're not supposed to eat and drink with people like that. And in the Middle East, I've shared this before, but in the Middle East, hospitality is a big deal. In fact, much of the third world, hospitality is a big deal. But it's particularly a big deal in the Middle East. And in a Middle Eastern culture, you will never find a people more hospitable and more gracious and, and who are more ready to open their doors to a stranger than you will in most of the cultures of the Middle East. Because the only news we ever hear is about terrorists and fanatical forms of Islam that want to kill people. We don't understand the culture of the man on the street is often one of great hospitality. Well, it was that way in Jesus' day. If you opened your door, you shared a table with someone, that meant you accepted them. And, it, and you accepted them on a social level that was life-changing. Because they were not accepted at the table of the religious leaders. They were not accepted at the table in the synagogue. They weren't accepted in those places. And Jesus sat down and ate with them. And this was a problem even in the early church. You remember in the early part of Galatians, Paul talks about the importance of Jews and Gentiles having fellowship with one another. And that out of two, God has made one church. That there are no racial boundaries. There are no ethnicity ethnic boundaries, there aren't even sexual boundaries, that men and women of all races and colors can come together and in one church have fellowship in Christ. He tells the story of an encounter he had with Peter, the apostle Peter, where Peter is eating with the Gentiles just like Paul, and they're, they're, he's, he's showing every indication of accepting them into his friendship, into this relationship as a Jewish man with Gentiles. He's just demonstrating the gospel. And then it says some people from Jerusalem showed up. And what does he do? He gets up from the table. He takes his tray. He gets away from the Gentile table. He walks over to the Jerusalem table, and he sets his tray down. Paul said, that's not right. And he gets in Peter's face, and he says, you are undermining, I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing, you are undermining the gospel by the way that you're acting. I have a good friend who lives now in East Jerusalem, and I've, I've shared his story before, but Muhammad and his wife Lama had some children. They lived in Baton Rouge in a Palestinian community there. One day they called the church. Uh, Lama's sister called the church, and they were looking for a babysitter. They called a Christian church because they they believed that Christian Americans were the most moral people and that their children, if they were babysitting, would be safe with those Christian Americans. And so we couldn't find sitters for them. And my oldest kids, they volunteered. And so they, they kept their kids on Friday nights and Saturday nights when they both had to work at a restaurant. He had a master's degree in uh, computer engineering, but the only way he could even hope to get his residency in the United States was as a Lebanese cook. And so he was cooking, and they were just trying their best to, to make ends meet and to stay in this country. 
And we forge a relationship with that couple, continues to this day, and, and, um, and ultimately they weren't able to stay here. Uh, right as his visa, his um, work uh, green card was, was about to be uh, considered seriously, uh, 9-11 happened. And do you think someone from his background in the Middle East was, had a chance? No. And so they live in East Jerusalem now. And he's a rare uh, Israeli-born Palestinian. And they still can't get passports from Israel. They, they have to get them from Jordan if you're Palestinian. One day we had Jordan, uh, Muhammad and his wife, Lama and their kids, three daughters, come over for a cookout. And I was cooking for him. We used to go to the restaurant. He cooked for me all the time. I went there and cooked for him, cooked burgers. He comes in the house, and he's, he's got his video camera. I said, Muhammad, what are you doing with the camera, man? He said, I am making a video, and I'm sending it back to my father because he would never believe Americans could be this nice. I said, film away. What's your dad's name? I said, hey, Pop. We sat down to eat. We, we chit-chat. I said, Muhammad, do you mind if I pray? He said, no, I don't mind. He knew I was a Christian. I knew he was Muslim. And I prayed, and I thanked the Lord for our food, and I thanked him in Jesus' name. And I looked up, and Muhammad was staring at me, just drilling holes through me. I thought maybe I had offended him in some way. And Muhammad's eyes were, were glistening. He was so moved by the moment. He said, Don, you don't understand. He said, in my country, if you eat with someone like this, he said, that means we're very, very close. It means we're very close friends. It means I would die for you. <laughs> I said, Muhammad, it was just a burger, man. When Jesus sat and ate with the tax collectors and sinners, he was saying to them, I am very, very close to you. I accept you into my circle of friendship. I believe we need to learn how to do that. Wherever level we are, I think you and I in our groups especially, we need to go to the next level. And helping people who come who are different in whatever way they're different, they, may just, may, uh, they might just be different because they're not from when. But however they come, when they come, they're different. And they're not like us. And we've got to learn to be like Jesus and make them feel accepted. Number three, total saturation is the third part of our mission. Not just depth relationships, but total saturation. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus tells the story of, of going, of a, of a man, a shepherd who's lost a sheep, going after the lost sheep. Uh, we did something a few years ago, I think it's been about three years ago now, where we put one of these in every classroom in our church. How many of y'all still have one of these in your class? If not, see Mike Monday. We'll get one in there. Uh, for years, when I taught Bible study groups, we would have a, an empty chair in the class. And one of the things we would do at the end of every lesson, we did it every week. It was kind of a joke. People would snicker. But I'd give the same speech every single week. And the speech always went something like this. Did you enjoy this lesson? Oh, yeah, it was great. You know, you always say that, right? They always said it to me. 
Anyway, they said, oh, that lesson was great. That was changed my life. I'm going to go down today. Go front. I'm just kidding. I'd say, who, who can you think of right now? Maybe in your family, a neighbor, someone who lives in another part of town. Who can you think of right now that needed what we talked about today in our Bible study? Now, you don't have to raise your hand and answer that question, but, but who comes to mind? And if anyone comes to mind, I don't think that's an accident. I think that's the Holy Spirit. Because God brings someone to mind that you believe needed what we talked about today in class. Well, this empty chair right here signifies that person. And what we want to do is, is in time, we want to see this empty chair occupied by that person that needed the lesson that we did today. And so we put these red chairs in all of our classrooms here at Wynn Baptist, in our adult classrooms, so that the idea of the empty chair, we call it the red chair, but the idea of the empty chair might get into our culture, might get into our thinking. As a teacher, I encourage you, make the speech. I mean, our people, they could give me the speech. It was just kind of a, it, it, they weren't laughing at it, but everybody just start grinning when I'd give the speech. But a lot of them, you could see, they were thinking. And, and when, that, when you keep that in front of your Bible study group, guess what happens? They really do begin to think about people who needed that lesson. They really begin to think about, man, that was good. I wish so-and-so was here to have heard that. They were just asking me about that a month ago. If they were here today, they would have gotten their question answered. I need to invite them. I need to invite them. You may not think of invitation as evangelism, but one of the most powerful things you can do for a person that doesn't know Jesus is plant them in a group of Christians who are just doing life together. And they can tell a difference. And they know that that group that I'm with, they got something I don't have. And they just know it. And so Jesus says, in response to the criticism, why are you eating and drinking with the wrong kinds of people? He tells the story of the, of the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go and find the lost sheep. Here's this guy. He's got 100 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. He has 99 of them. His, his pen is full, and he's missing one. And, and I think the reason this had such impact on, on, on these men who were criticizing Jesus is because they could imagine that scenario. 99 sheep, only one, only one, Jesus. Come on, give us a break. Only one is missing. And he says, well, this shepherd, he leaves the 99. And he goes and finds the one that's lost, that's missing. And he searches until he finds it. That's what I'm doing, is what Jesus is saying to those men. That's what I'm doing. That's my mission. That's why I'm here. And don't miss what he's saying. He's saying, look, if I've got 99 religious people, and they have already been caught and stamped and baked and whatever, I've got 99 religious people in my church, and there's one out there that's not part of my church, where is Jesus going to go? If 99% of the United States were Christian, 
Where would Jesus go next? He would go to the 1%, wouldn't he? And that's the point that he's making. And, and so he is serious about eliminating lostness. Are we? Are we serious about eliminating lostness in Wynn, Arkansas? Serious about eliminating, eliminating lostness in the delta of Arkansas? To where there's nobody in the delta who has not had an opportunity to hear the gospel and to receive Christ. And you say, well, everybody's heard the gospel. You think? You can just walk down the street, I promise you. You can walk down the street here and win and ask people, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what he did on the cross? And I think you would be shocked, horrified by the answers that you get. So Jesus is serious about eliminating lostness. For this, for us, the assignment becomes this. I don't believe Jesus is at all interested in accumulating people in the church building. We are called to saturate the world with the gospel. And you say, where do you get that, Pastor? Let me give you some verses. You can just jot them down. Mark 16 15 is one of my personal favorites. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Every creature. Every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl in Wynn, Arkansas. Go and preach a gospel to them. Every man, woman, boy, and girl in Arkansas needs to hear the gospel. Every man, woman, boy, and girl in the world, on the planet, needs to hear the gospel. Go and preach the gospel, he says, to every creature. What does that mean? It means if we as a church are not intentional about that, if we don't have a plan to do that, if we don't have a way to do that for 2018, if you want to just choose a year, if we don't have a plan to go and take the gospel to every person to win Arkansas, are we planning obedience or disobedience? We see it illustrated. If, what did the early church understand? Did they understand that this was the mission? In Acts 5.28, the people who were persecuting the disciples said, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Have we filled wind with our doctrine? Have we filled wind so that everybody's talking about Jesus? Acts 19, verses 8 and 10. Uh, on a previous trip across Asia Minor, the Apostle Paul wanted to go into the province of Asia, and we read about it, how the Holy Spirit kept him from doing it. Why did he want to go to the province of Asia? Because that was where the city of Ephesus was. Ephesus was the third largest metropolitan area in the Roman world. In the province of Asia, there were approximately 300,000 people who lived in that province. It's an extremely populated area. Well, he didn't get to go. But later, God brought him back to Ephesus. And in Acts 19, verse 8, it says, And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. What do you think Jesus preached about? The kingdom of God. What do you think Paul is preaching about? It says it here. He's preaching about the kingdom of God. And then in verse 10, And this continued for two years. He did it for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. There were no boundaries racially or ethnically. Everybody in Asia 
heard the word of the Lord. All of them. Do you think it's exaggeration? Do you think it's hyperbole? Do you think that's not real? No email, no spam, no billboards, no robocalls, just people gossiping the gospel. Yes, we need to send missionaries, and we need to tell people around the world about Jesus. But we can never forget that we are called to do missions right here. And I believe your Bible study group affords you as an individual one of the best ways to be on mission in Wynn, Arkansas. The last aspect of our mission I want to call attention to is verses 5 and 7, 5 through 7. I'm going to call this Crazy Love. There's a book by that title. I think it's a good book. You ought to read it um, by Francis Chan. But I'm just using those words right now, Crazy Love. Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus spend so much time with the secular and irreligious people of his age? Why did he do that? Why did he invest in them? Jesus explains when he summarizes um, in verses 5 to 7. He says, when he's found it, this lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you in the same way, listen to this, that there will be more joy in heaven. Not here. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Yeah, you had your day. When you came to Christ, there was joy in heaven. And I preached this morning how the Father loves you and takes pleasure in you. And he takes delight in you. But listen, why was Jesus doing this? Why was his mission outside the walls of the synagogue? Why was his mission out there to the secular and irreligious people? Because every time he brought a sheep home, the father danced in heaven. And if Jesus was about anything, it was about pleasing his father. Every time a lost person turned to Christ, every time a person repented, turned from a life without God, and began to seek God, the Father rejoiced. The Father rejoiced. What if I told you there was something that you could do tonight, something you could do tomorrow, something you could do next Sunday morning, and I could guarantee you the Father would be rejoicing over what you did? Would you be interested? As he opens doors for you, doors that are already open, some that are about to open, people that you can talk to, it may just be as simple as coming up next to somebody and just having a warm conversation and saying, hey, by the way, I got a group of people we meet with on Sunday mornings, we study the Bible. Would you be interested in studying the Bible with us? You have questions about God? We have questions. We're learning. We're studying. Would you, would you come with us? And that person comes, and they, they sit for a Sunday or two, and they're kind of, I'm not sure about these people, but they can't, they can't shake it out of their heads that there's something about these folks that's different, and I'm really kind of interested in what they're talking about. And then they begin to speak up. Maybe they ask a question. 
during class or just after the class, they grab the teacher, what do you mean by this? What does this mean in the Bible? And they start asking questions. And then you give them a job to do. They're not even Christians yet. But you say, hey, we're going to have a party. Would you mind bringing some to the party? And then they, they come and they bring something to the party. You make them feel apart, and they, they begin to have a sense of belonging, that I'm connecting with these people, and I'm, I have something here I don't have anywhere else in my life. Everywhere else in my life is messed up, but I really like what happens when I'm around these people. And then the moment comes where it clicks and the Holy Spirit turns the light on and they get it and they understand the gospel. And then they come and they trust Jesus. And he comes to live inside them and he washes away their sins and he takes up residence inside them through his Holy Spirit. And Jesus says every time that happens, the Father says, yes! Yes! And he would make the Mississippi State Cowboys sound like a little peep. All those cowbells ringing, all the yelling in all the stadiums in all America on, on Saturday, just a little peep compared to the rejoicing in heaven when one person comes to Christ. That's why he did it. That's why he did it. May I ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes. I'm just going to ask you one question. Jesus knew where the lost sheep were in his world. Do you know where the lost sheep are in yours? You may be sitting here tonight and you say, I, don't, I not only know where the lost sheep are, I'm one of them. Maybe you realize tonight that you don't know Christ, but you're like one of those people that Jesus loved to eat with that Jesus loved to sit down with, people who are broken, people who have been damaged, people who have been hurt, people who have messed up, they already know it. They need relief from their sin. They need forgiveness. They need someone to show them the way and lead them out of the life they're in into a new kind of life. And tonight you're ready to come and put your trust in Jesus to do that. Jesus died on the cross for you. Your sin was so serious that that's what it took to take it away. You can't make it go away. You can't even remove your guilt. You can kid yourself, lie to yourself that you're not guilty, but you know in your heart you are. But Jesus died on the cross so all your guilt could be removed. All your sins could be forgiven. And then he waits and he longs to lead you to a new life. And he'll do it. And this church exists to help you on that journey. All of us at one time were just like you. All of us at one time were just like you. And so if you need Jesus tonight, I invite you to come. One of the other pastors, Dustin, is here down front. I'm here. We'd, be, we'd love to talk with you, share scripture with you, answer your questions. But you can leave here tonight forgiven with a new life. Then brothers or sisters, where are the lost sheep in your world? Where are they? You may work with them. You may live with them. They may be your best friend. It may be someone across the street. 
maybe someone on another part of the state or even across the country, but you know who they are and they're on your heart tonight. And I would encourage you just to make yourself available to the Lord. Just say, Lord, I have not cared about the things you cared about, but tonight, Lord, I want to get on the same page with you and I want my heart to beat with your heart. And so, Lord, I just open up my life and I want you to lead me to the lost sheep. Show me how to love them the way you love them. Teach me, Lord, how to go after the sheep that are not part of the 99. Teach me, Lord, to love and go after those who are very different from me. Right here where I live.